Hey, good morning, good morning. Thank you for worshiping with us. What you don't see is the million people scattering on stage right now. It's just, amen, amen. <laughs> That's good. They was moving. He was a high step. Amen. Y'all don't know. It's okay. Just if y'all were here, y'all would have saw something funny just now. Anyway, uh, we are about to dive into God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, and I really do hope you do, would you open up to Ephesians chapter 2? Uh, we're going to start there. We are going to do what Pastor Sean called last week some Bible gymnastics. Um, but we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2. So go ahead and open up your Bibles there. We finished our series in the book of Galatians, talking about faith, hope, and love um, just recently, and we are going to start a new series. Um, But before we do, I wanted to take this Sunday to talk about something that I think is pressing and important for us to get and understand. And so today I want to talk about the gospel, Um, and not just the gospel, maybe as we understand it, but I want to expand our understanding maybe to to maybe to call it the whole gospel. And so if you're looking for a title for today's message, it is simply this the whole gospel. Let me begin with a quote by the preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He preached this sermon called Preach the Gospel in August 5th of 1855, and at the beginning of it, he says this, to preach the gospel is to state every doctrine contained in God's word and to give every truth its proper prominence. Men may preach a part of the gospel. They may only preach one single doctrine of it. And I would not say that that man did not preach the gospel at all if he did but maintain the doctrine of justification by faith. By grace are ye saved through faith. I should put him down as a gospel minister, but not one who preached the whole gospel. Listen carefully. No man can be said to preach the whole gospel of God if he leaves out knowingly and intentionally one single truth of the blessed God. Would you pray with me now? Father, I pray that you would give me the strength today to preach the whole gospel. I pray that you would soften all of our hearts, that you would open all of our ears so that we can hear your words through mine. I pray that you would move me out of the way. Holy Spirit, accomplish more than planning and preparation can. Would you do infinitely more through the power of your spirit? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you change us? Would you encourage us by your word? In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen and amen. As Charles Spurgeon says, no man can be said to preach the whole gospel of God if he leaves out one single truth of the blessed God. And so today I want to talk about what the whole gospel is. Now, um, if I were to ask you what is the gospel, what would you say? Maybe think about your answer right now. What is the gospel? Now, if I ask 10 different people, I might hear 10 different answers, but it would all really boil down to this type of formulation that God is holy and perfect. We are not by our nature and our choices. We are sinners. And the only way to be reconciled back to God is Jesus Christ came and died for us on the cross of Calvary so that all who put their faith in him would be saved. It is not by works. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Somebody should say amen. Amen. And that is good news. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out today that that is not the whole story. That is the good news. That is the story of the Bible. That's just not the whole story. You see, what God did for you is not the whole truth of the gospel. As my grandma used to say, a whole, uh, telling a half-truth is telling a whole lie. 
And if we're honest and if we're critical about our history and our understanding and how we were even raised in and around the church, we have been told and therefore have been telling others the half-truth of the gospel. You know, when I was at the Citadel, my time there, they would call that quibbling. To tell a half-truth, to deceive by omitting, you would get kicked out of school for that. Um, And honestly, growing up in my own household, when I was going outside, when I first got my license and learned how to drive, one of the constant questions I was asked by my mom was, where are you going? And it was dangerous to tell the whole truth, wasn't it? Right? But it was safer to tell a half-truth, well, I'm going to go to the store. And I was going to go to the store at some point that day. I was going to stop by that person's house and this person's house and run a couple of errands, but I was telling a half-truth, and by telling a half-truth, I was actually lying and deceiving my parents. Our family, as families, we recognize that. Even institutions like the Citadel recognize that telling a half-truth is not telling the truth at all. But honestly, we have been telling and living a half-truth of the gospel. You see, what Jesus did for you is profound. And if, honestly, if the gospel stopped there, that should change very little about our worship. If all Jesus did was save us from our sins, we would owe God an eternity of worship and praise just for that. But I feel like the old, uh, the commercials you see at late night selling these weird products, but wait, there's more. And in the gospel, God saves us from our sins, but wait, there's more. And Ephesians chapter 2 beautifully illustrates this more of the gospel. You see, verses 1 through 10 talk about this vertical reconciliation that we have between God and us. That through Jesus Christ, we in our sins are now reconciled to God. We are able to have a relationship with him. Look at verses 8 through 10 for just a moment. It says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from work, so that no man can boast. And so what that saying is the beautiful half-truth of the gospel that you don't have to earn it, you don't have to work for it, and you will never deserve it because it is a gift. And we should live in that truth moment by moment, day by day. That is just not the entryway into Christianity. That's not how you get saved. That's what preserves you day by day as we are adopted, and it's a gift from God. And that is what chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is all about, this vertical reconciliation, how we were dead in our sins, incapable and unwilling to save ourselves, yet Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, but that's not the whole story. You see, verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2 tells the rest of the story, and if we're honest, this is the oft-forgotten part of the gospel. Would you look at verses 13 and 14? It says, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. How? In his flesh. Verse 19. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers to each other, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. You see... There is a relational component to the gospel that we have oftentimes overlooked and minimized. This vertical reconciliation through Jesus also provides a horizontal or one another reconciliation as well. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. That is what Jesus died for, y'all. 
It's so that the hatred and biases and, and idolatry and self-serving that we all are born with is defeated at the cross so that we can rightly love our neighbor. That is the whole gospel. Now, why are we talking about this today? There is a conversation in our homes, at our jobs, at our families, um, through text messages, through Facebook. There's a conversation going on right now about biblical justice, about what justice looks like in this world. And there is a tension from some of us that feel like there is a choice to be made between preaching the gospel and being about the business of biblical justice. My goal today is simply this, to expand our understanding of the gospel so that we see that they are not contradictions, but they actually are complementary truths. To preach the gospel is to take up the fight towards biblical justice. They are one and the same. They are not in tension with one another. The go- preaching the gospel and biblical justice, they aren't distracting from one another. They actually show that the other is true. Now, this is countering decades of discipleship. I understand. And we're going to go through lots of Scripture today. I would pray that you would give me a moment of understanding, a moment of being willing to suspend our preconceived beliefs about the gospel and just openly hear what the Word of God says. Is the gospel story just what God did for me, or is the gospel bigger than that? Does just preach the gospel mean that we shouldn't talk about justice, or is preaching the gospel necessitate us? talking about justice. I would say to preach the gospel is to preach the gospel of justice. Let me prove it to you in Scripture. There are several passages that will not make sense with our half-hearted gospel. If you believe only half the gospel about what Jesus did for you, the individual, there are several passages in the New Testament that will not make sense to us, and I want to go through just a few of those. James chapter 1, verse 27 Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. Pause there for a second. Pure and perfect Christianity. That's shorthand for what this is saying. Perfect Christianity, living uprightly before God, looks like what? It looks like this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, that's a verse that would not make sense with a half-hearted gospel. If, if what Jesus accomplished on the cross was just the redemption of sin and sinners, then that's what we must be preaching, and anything else would be a distraction from that. And yet the book of James is clear that right religion, pure Christianity, to put it in our terms, is to actually care for the widow and the orphan, to care for those in distress and to keep ourselves unstained from the corruption of this world. So do it in a way that is holy and upright. Half the gospel doesn't get us there. Only with the whole gospel does James 1.27 make sense. Let me give you another one. Matthew 23.23 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Pause for just a second. The indictment here isn't that they're not keeping the law. Tithing and giving was prescribed in the law. The problem was they put intention and in contradiction 
honoring God and loving others. He says that's why he called them hypocrites. He says, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Once again, the word of God is clear that we don't have to choose between honoring God and worship and loving others, being those who pronounce justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We must do both without neglecting one. The word of God over and over makes clear that when we choose one, the God, Jesus himself speaking, calls us hypocrites. To preach a gospel of salvation and not care for the people we're preaching about makes us hypocrites. It condemns us. It does not make us more righteous and holy. Another one for us. Matthew 25. Once again, we need to understand the whole gospel in order for these passages to make sense. This is a longer passage, but I'm going to read the whole thing because Jesus himself is going to unpack this for us. Starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. But he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is a picture, y'all, of us entering eternal worship and fellowship with the Father. This is a picture of what the process is going to be about God's judgment for those who are righteous and unrighteous, those who will enjoy him forever, and those who will be cast out forever. And what was this based upon? Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did for me what we do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, and the Lord declares those righteous. But Jesus isn't done. He gives us a warning. In verse 41, he says, But then he will also say to those who are on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Why are these people condemned? For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't care, care, care for me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will inherit eternal life. I cannot make this more plain, church. I cannot make this more plain. To proclaim the gospel is to care for the most vulnerable among us. The prisoner, the widow, the child, the orphan, the stranger, the immigrant, the sick. 
That is the judgment upon which God says you are righteous. Not a works-based salvation, but a faith that produces works. I read earlier Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that says we are saved by grace, and it is a gift. Look at verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are not saved by works. We are saved for works. And that actually demonstrates the credibility of our conversion. That is why those who looked religious, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, Jesus called them hypocrites. Because they had all the knowledge, but none of the love. They knew all the rules, but couldn't care for anyone. And if we're honest, many of us have been steeped in a religion that says Jesus saves but not Jesus cares. Jesus saves, Jesus cares for your soul and is silent on your suffering. Jesus saves, but Jesus doesn't care. And this half-hearted gospel is why we feel like there's a tension between doing biblical justice and preaching the gospel. Over and over, I have been surrounded and inundated with words that preachers should preach the gospel, not get involved in these issues. Christians should preach the gospel and share the gospel. We've been called to evangelize and disciple and not talk about any of these issues. We see them as opposites or contradictory or at best a distraction when they are actually one and the same. To preach the gospel is to preach Jesus saves and Jesus cares. We don't have to choose between the two. We must embrace both. Our churches are spurred on by the Great Commission. Some of you know it, Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And that has been the rallying cry of missions locally and globally for decades, the Great Commission. But along the way, I think we have forgotten the Great Commandment. We forget that in our going, what are we to take to those who are lost in their sins? What are we to take to be the hope of the world? What should we say when we are making disciples? Mark chapter 12, verse 28 makes it clear. One of the scribes, these were people who studied the law and actually copied, uh, copied uh, made, made copies of the law by hand. These are people who had memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament at that time. Learned men. So one of those scribes approached, when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, the scribe asked Jesus, which command is the most important of all? Think about this for a second. You walk up to Jesus teaching a Bible study, and you say, I've memorized several books of the Old Testament. I have studied the, the, the Bible co copiously and rigorously for years of my life. If you had to boil it all down, Jesus, if you had to boil it all down, what's the most important command? How did Jesus respond? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Most of us would stop there. 
And that's true. The great commandment, the great call of the Christian life is to submit our entire being and our entire person to the lordship of Christ. There is no area of our hearts, of our thoughts, of our finances, of our family that we don't give over to God. We submit all of it to him. But that's not the whole answer, is it? The verse 31, the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's telling us the good news is Jesus saves and Jesus cares. He's telling us the good news is total, utter submission by the power of the Holy Spirit in a regenerated life, living a life of worship to God and... Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's a common phrase for us. It's almost cliche in our hearing. But think about what this is saying. There is a, this is oftentimes called the golden rule. And in most other world religions, they have a very similar golden rule. From Hinduism to Buddhism to other, to other religions, they have a very similar rule, but their rule is oftentimes stated in the negative. We say love your neighbor as yourself. Other religions, most of them say that in the negative of don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Do you see the difference? One is saying, the negative is saying don't hurt people. That's not what God is saying when it says love your neighbor. Love your neighbor isn't don't do wrong to people. It's not a passive, almost reflexive act of apathy and distance. No, love your neighbor means to pursue loving your neighbor. We're not just talking about treating people fairly. We're talking about flourishing. What would you want for you? What would you want for your family? What would you want for your children? That's what it means to love your neighbor, is you will want that for them. Not just fairness, but flourishing. Not just a bare minimum of respect. Not just not guilty, but righteous. That's what our gospel says. And so to love our neighbor as ourself means to give them the proper affection, care, and protection that we would give our own bodies. It is an active love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a counterintuitive love. It is a dangerous love that puts us in harm's way so that others will flourish. I know some of us are probably wrestling right now as we're hearing this, like, isn't that just some therapeutic moral deism, right? Isn't that just good people doing good things? What happened to the gospel that saves not by works? Turn to Matthew chapter 5 for me. You see, when Christians do good works on the other side of salvation— Something supernatural happens. I'm going to start at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 5. It says, you, talking about believers, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. Listen carefully. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You see, when believers, when we do these good works, when we stand on the side of the oppressed, when we stand on the side of the widow and the prisoner and the foreigner and the immigrant, when we do those good works, something supernatural happens where people begin to believe what we say about Jesus. 
that when we do good works, it's not just nice people doing nice things. No, it is redemptive in nature because people see there's something otherworldly about people loving sacrificially. There's something otherworldly about taking on burdens that are not your own. There's something otherworldly about caring for problems that are not your problems. And the Lord says he will use those good works to point people's eyes and affections to God, and God will get the glory, and people will come to know him. To preach the gospel is to preach Jesus saves and to preach Jesus cares. Let me go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 here. I'm starting at verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus' mission statement. Y'all hear what he's saying? He's quoting Isaiah. He's saying that this is why I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. Don't over-spiritualize Jesus' words here. Did he preach to the spiritually blind? Yes. Did he preach to those who were captive to their sin? Yes. But we all saw Jesus actually healing blind people, didn't we? We saw Jesus actually feeding hungry people, didn't we? You see, these aren't just spiritual metaphors for individual salvation. No, he is saying, I have come to see this whole world brought under subjection to the kingdom of God, where human flourishing is actually a good thing, and it points to a good father. I have come proclaim release to the captives, recover the side of the blind, and set free the oppressed. If that is why Jesus came, why do you think we are still here? Why do you think we're still here? What's the goal and aim of the church? What's the goal and aim of the Christian life? I can tell you what it's not. It's not to preach half the truth. It's not to tell half the story. You know, it's a, it's a rightful uh, condemnation against some of the evangelical theology that believes that our theology starts from Genesis chapter 3 and ends on John 3, 16. Our story of redemption starts with the fall of man and ends with Jesus' work on the cross, or part of the work on the cross. Genesis 1 and 2 about God's good creation, this creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1, to steward the earth, to take dominion over the earth is oftentimes neglected. This picture of heaven in Revelation chapter 7 and 12 of a restored creation. Heaven is not our home, y'all. God is coming back to restore the earth to the image of which he established it. And we are God's ambassadors here doing that in small ways in the city of North Charleston, doing that in small ways in North Charleston and Goose Creek and Somerville and Hanahan and all the cities around. And we do this in small ways so that people get a glimpse of the king and the kingdom to come. That is why we are commanded to pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not your will be done in heaven and Lord, we can't wait. Not your will be done in heaven, and I'm going to tell everybody I can so I can get them there, so then finally they'll know that Jesus cares about them. No, we do those things now and here so that people can see that we have a God who saves and a God who cares. 
There is no tension between proclaiming the gospel and taking up the standard against injustice in this world. There is no tension. We have created one, but it is unbiblical and it is ungodly. And it really, the scriptures that I read tell us that a plain reading of scripture won't allow us to do that. I've oftentimes been encouraged, as they would say it, Philip, just preach the gospel. My answer is always the same. I agree. I just disagree with your definition of gospel. I agree. Preachers should preach the gospel. But we should preach the whole gospel. Because the problem is we've been telling a lie about who God is, and we wonder why the world rejects it. We wonder why people are coming to faith. We wonder why in a season of hopelessness, churches aren't packed right now. In a season of uncertainty and doubt, churches aren't packed right now. Why? Because we have a God who saves, but a God who doesn't care. And it's not the gospel's fault. It's ours. We are grace by faith alone through Christ alone people. And that is good, but that is not the whole story. We also have to be dividing wall of hostility, torn down people. Reconciled to one another people. No longer aliens and strangers people. We've got to tell the whole story or be condemned for telling half the story. So what do I want you to do with this? One is this should provoke worship in our hearts, y'all. You know the sad reality for those who say just preach the gospel and they mean half the gospel is they actually make the blood of Jesus Christ less valuable. They actually say Jesus did less than what he actually did. They actually make the gospel and the God of the gospel smaller. And the great tragedy of this misconception about half the gospel is our worship is hindered because we don't worship God rightly because we don't see him rightly. But a God who not just saved us from our sins, but reconciled us to one another and releases us and sends us to a dead and dying world with a present and future hope, that's a big God who cares. That's a blood who did more than save my sins, even though that would be enough. He went beyond that and said, no, I'm not just going to save you. I'm going to send you as an ambassador to be my hands and my feet to a world he needs to see me in action. And they see that action through the church. They see that through the church, y'all, through what we talk about, through who we care about, through who we make much of, through who we honor, how our budgets are spent. They see whether we have a, serve a God who cares or not by how we care or not, by how we love or not. And so for those who are wrestling with this tension, let me just say this. When someone tells you again to just preach the gospel, don't disagree with them. Ask them their definition of the gospel. Say, I agree. Let's make sure we're on the same page. What do you mean by gospel? What is the good news? And unfortunately, many of us respond with a self-centered gospel. You see, if your answer to what is the gospel is, God loves me so much that he saved me from my sins so that I can enjoy him forever, what you have inadvertently done is you have taken Jesus out the center of the redemption story and you have put yourself. And all of redemption is circling around you. How much God loves you, what he did for you, and how you will enjoy him forever. Now, none of us would ever say that, but that's what it practically becomes. It becomes a gospel about me. 
But when you see the gospel as bigger than what God did in your life, which is phenomenal, but when you see it as bigger than that, you must take your sinner out, you must take yourself out of the center and see that God is actually weaving a redemption story that I'm just part of. He's actually doing something bigger than me. He's doing something bigger than my personal relationship with him. He is actually restoring this world through the church as a glimpse of the restoration to come. That one day he will wipe every tear from every eye. He will turn swords into plowshares. He will have the lion and the lamb sitting together. One day we will see it and it will be perfect. Until then, Christian, get to work. Show them pieces. Show them glimpses by loving people well. Because that's what the gospel means. We must preach the gospel. We almost live the gospel. And it's got to be the whole gospel or it's not the gospel at all. Let me give an encouragement before I close. This good news is what the world has been waiting to hear, y'all. This good news hopefully frees you up right now from any sense of hesitation about what side of these issues you should be on, about how loud your voice should be on some of these issues. Hopefully, Radiant Church, let me say this for a second, this should free you from feeling like this is a distraction. This moment in time that we are in is not a distraction from the mission of the church. It is an opportunity for the church to be on mission. This is why we're here, y'all, to continue the work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, God, thank you for your love and for your goodness. God, I pray right now that you would just unroot this half-hearted gospel that we have been taught, that you would unroot this self-centered gospel. And would you make the blood of Jesus more precious in our eyes? God, we see that you accomplished infinitely more than we would dare imagine, that you saved us from our sins by faith, and then you send us out as redeemed people to proclaim God saves and God cares. Would we not be hypocrites who neglect the weightier matters of the law. But we be people of love and justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen.